Please remain standing as we read from uh, the second chapter of Second Thessalonians. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them, sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Lord, Father, I thank you for the gift of your church, dear Lord, that we have brothers and sisters that can encourage us because they stand firm on your word. Lord, we know that your word is the, the one and only truth. Lord, I pray that you will protect our, our mind, protect our spirit that we will not be deceived, that we will follow you and be encouraged that you provide for us, that no matter what we may face here in this world, we know that we have victory in you in eternity. And though you never change, that you change us. You change us to be more like you through sanctification, dear Lord. You have, you have, chosen us through for for salvation where we look look to the gospel dear lord of that you sent your one and only son as a man to live a perfect life here on this earth dear lord to be a sacrifice to be put to death but to be to be raised again with a command for us to go out and make disciples of all the nations, dear Lord, but with the promise that you will be with us until the end. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because of you, we can face every day. Because of you, we know that we can be lifted up by each other because we stand firm with you. Lord, this morning, let us hear your words spoken through Jacob. Lord, let him speak with boldness. Let him speak with your authority. Let us hear your words and be changed by them, letting our faith be increased so we can go out and do what you've asked us to do of making disciples. Lord, we love you for all that you have done for us, all that you are presently doing for us, and all that you have in store for us. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.
Good morning, church family. So we're in a bit of a transient moment here. It is an absolute joy to be able to come and uh, deliver the word of God. Um, My prayer is that the Lord will be glorified through the teaching of his word. There is absolutely no greater end of man, I'm convinced, than ultimately to glorify God and magnify him. That is my prayer. Um, that that will take place today through the teaching of his word. So we're going to be, as you heard read, in 2 Thessalonians 2. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17. Now, if you are an astute observer, or you took notes last week, you'll notice that we actually covered part of those verses. We covered 9 through 12 last week, but we're going to hit them again um, from a bit of a different perspective. Now, as we go into this passage, I want to give an overview of kind of the philosophy that I'm coming at in terms of preaching it. So, so where, how are we pulling from the passage? How are we going through it? How do we understand it? Now, at this church, anybody up here will be preaching expositionally or exegetically. And what that means, essentially, is that we serve We are servants to expose the word of God, to pull it out, to place it in its proper context, and then pull application from that as how it applies to our lives. So we don't just go, oh, um, you know, I can do all things through Christ, Christ who strengthens me, right? Well, it says that, so therefore I can go and I can fly or anything like that, right? Like that verse needs to be put in its proper context. And then from that proper context, we understand what the, the writers meant, and we pull the application from that meaning. And so when we're looking at, at, at verses 9 through, thir- uh, 9 through 17, I just want to provide a quick overview of what's going on in 2 Thessalonians. So there are, are two real big themes in 2 Thessalonians. So the, the secondary theme, I would say, is that the day of the Lord has not yet occurred. Right? That's what Paul wants the Thessalonians to know. He's writing to this church to say, hey, the day of the Lord has not yet occurred. Here's what it's going to look like. And so he's going to get into some specifics. Not a lot, but some to say, here are the things that you can know to see when it's occurred and when it has not. But ultimately, his prime focus, his prime theme of of 2 Thessalonians is to comfort the Thessalonians and ensure them, assure them of their salvation. Remember in verses uh, 2 and 3 of of, of 2 Thessalonians 2, he says... We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. And then he goes on. So the Thessalonians have been told, hey, the day of the Lord has come, and you're not a part of it. You're still here. You were not taken up with the Lord. And so they're going, oh my gosh, are we saved? Right, so that's, that's what Paul is ultimately looking to address. And so he's looking at the day of the Lord with the ultimate reason being to assure them of their salvation, of the love that the Lord has for you. So that's, that's how we're approaching this passage. Now, I, there are a lot of different ways that Scripture can hit us at different times in their lives. This one, specifically for me, has hit really hard, and I believe that the Lord has been preparing me for this specific passage for months, because this is something that I struggle with. 
is assurance of salvation and anxiety around it, right? Of, am I, am I loved by the Lord? Am I saved? Have I believed the right things? Have I, and going down the list, and, and a lot of it's irrational, right? Like there aren't even, when I like work through it, like there aren't even always really that good of reasons why I have these worries, but yet I still have these worries and these anxieties at times. And so I don't know if that's you. I don't know if that's you now or has been you in a season or maybe a coworker of yours this week. But that's sp- specifically the comfort that I have drawn from this passage of what, what comfort can I have when I'm wrestling with doubts and uncertainty, when I'm concerned. So that's kind of the general arching overview the, the, the direction that we're looking at here. Now, when we're looking at verses 9 through, specifically 9 through 12, um, we need to, to understand what exactly Paul is talking about here. Because again, we have to set it in its proper context. And I believe that the arguments are strong that he's specific, speaking to a specific event that will occur in the end times. So this coming of the lawless one. Um, there are a couple reasons for this. Right, so remember, he's looking to provide tangible events and reasons that they can hold on to to say, okay, the day of the Lord has not yet come. I don't have to worry about that. Um, he states in verse 8 that the revelation of the lawless one uh, is an actual event. Right, so it's the coming of the lawless one. Um, he will be revealed, and when he's revealed, he'll be destroyed. Um, yet, I believe that we can draw from this passage more than just a fuller understanding of what the end times will look like. And there are a couple reasons for this. So in in verse 7, we see that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And I'm shooting through this a little bit because I don't want to get too stuck in this, but want to provide, again, a framework of why are we looking at this passage in the way that we are. And and I want to present that because as you hear anything that comes from any pulpit, you need to be saying, does this make sense? Is the reason that the, the, the preacher is saying what he's saying, is there a connection to scripture in that? Or is he just saying, this is kind of what I want to preach on, and I'm going to find a scripture that allows me to do that. So we see that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in verse 7. So this event that Paul's talking about in verses 9 through 12, we could see as this culmination of things that are already going on. So when we look at this culmination, and we're saying, how does this apply to us in the present age? Part of it is to see, well... In a precursor sort of way, these undercurrents are already running in our culture, in our lives, in our hearts, and so we need to be on guard for this. Second, in in verse 9, we see that the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working. So, the the Satan, the one in in Revelation who's called the, the one who deceives the whole world, is the one who's behind the coming of the lawless one that dad covered last week. And so the tactics of the enemy that are going to be used at that end time are already being employed today. Um, and that's deception. It's, it, it's what goes back to the, to the Garden of Eden. And then finally, the things that Paul's talking about here, that there are those who did not believe in the truth but delighted in righteousness, and that he sends a strong delusion, so these things in verses 11 through 12, are certainly supported elsewhere in Scripture um, outside of this specific context. Um, we see that in Romans 1, and so we're going to get into that. So again, if all of that went like, just kind of, I don't really know where he's getting here. My, my purpose in providing that, that overview is to say, I believe that Paul is talking about a specific event, that the lawless one will come, that there will be those who buy into this deception and turn away, 
but that these things are actually already happening in, in their own forms. So with that kind of out of the way, let's get, in, let's get into the verses here. So verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of miracles, signs, and wonders. Now, remember, a lot, the, the, the theme of Paul is to comfort the Thessalonians in their salvation. And one of the ways that he does that is by explaining what's going to happen in the end times, because that's the specific concern that they had. And so when we're looking at that, I have a question, which is what do we base our understanding of truth on? Do we believe things simply because we've seen things that we can't explain? Is that enough to convince you of what is true? And I'm going to tell you, if you have experienced things that you can't see, that you can't understand, which I absolutely believe happen, signs, wonders, miracles, I'm going to tell you, I believe scripture says that these extra biblical sources are not inherently reliable. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 2, so same book that we're in. Um, sorry, this is chapter 2, um, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. So even the very thing that caused the Thessalonians worry, Paul's like, that could have been some, something that seemed like a prophecy. It might have been accompanied by some supernatural signs going on. But he's like, don't be convinced by that. Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. If an angel came down and told me, hey, this is what is true about salvation, about why you're here, honestly, I would really struggle not to believe that. Like, that would be, wow, okay. I mean, you came down, it's like, I can't explain that. Just genuinely, if I were not filtering that through scripture, that'd be really hard to deny. But what we're told is that these signs and wonders might occur, but if they don't line up with what is in scripture, regardless of how real they seem, they're not to be given credibility at all. Now, so this does not mean that all signs and wonders are false inherently. So what do we do with them? Going back to the, the, the last letter that Paul wrote to this Thessalonian people as they were dealing with very similar doubts and concerns. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. 1 John 1, 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the word. So this tells us, when we're looking at specifically signs and wonders. Because remember, this is something that is going to happen in the end times. This, this man of lawlessness is going to come. This is an actual event. And the details that we are provided, what God wants us to know is what we have. So we don't have the full story. We don't have the full picture. But we don't need the full picture because God's told us we don't. Otherwise, we would have it in scripture. Right, so this man of lawlessness is going to come, and he's going to deceive a great number of people. And in this, there are going to be signs and wonders that come, supernatural things that, that happen. 
And a lot of people are going to be caught up in that. And why, we'll look at it in a second. But just because that's going to come doesn't mean that we just disregard everything. But instead, we're to test all things. We're not to believe every spirit, but we're to test if they're from God. We're to filter everything, whether logical or illogical, things that can't be explained, right? If, if you'll try to track with me what I'm, I'm saying there, through the filter of the gospel, of what has been delivered to us as God's word. So what do we base our evaluation on? Second Thess- 1 Thessalonians 2.13 This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. So it's looking at the tradition of the apostles, the scriptures. So again, everything that we work through, should go through, does this line up with what the word of God has told us? So Paul continues. Verse 10. We're looking at at a first emphasis here. So we'll we'll drop back to verse 9 for context, but we're going to be looking at verse 10 right now. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. So we started out talking about supernatural signs and wonders, which sometimes is very pertinent to our lives. When I was in Boston a couple of years ago, I was on mission there, um, working with some churches, some church plants there. And there were things, man, when you heard their story, it was like, oh my goodness gracious, this cannot happen just of human, of human measure. Right, like, they are living on mission, but the way that the, they're, like, they're just going and risking it all, and the only way that they can still be here is that the Lord has been providing. Because they don't have the finances backing them. They don't have the safety net. It is the Lord has provided here and here and here and here and here and here. Right, so some, some of you have seen that on the mission field in your own lives. But also, you know, every day I don't see a supernatural sign and wonder. So how does this really apply to me? Again, verse 10, with every wicked deception. So it's not just false miracles, signs, and wonders, but it's, it's every way that deception could come. Colossians 2.8. Paul's addressing a, a heresy that has taken place in the church of, of um, the Colossian people. I'm not going to say the church name because I'm going to mess it up. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty, what? It's not there? That's, that's fine? <laughs> Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. So it's not just supernatural signs that we have to worry about, but it's really good sounding arguments. Right? Arguments that on the surface, oh man, I don't know what to do with that. Right? Well, what do we do with that? We dig down and we say, okay, so what's really going on here? Let me pull back the layers. And then once I kind of get what's going on there, does it match what Scripture's saying? So in every way, we need to be on guard against deceit because deception is all around us and it's coming. And so that's the application of this first part. 
we got to be expecting deception attempts. Right, so we need to know that there are specific efforts to deceive us. And it can come in all forms. It can come in a really good argument at work. Or it could come in that there's an angel of the Lord. Right, There's an angel, a, a heavenly being who's telling me that Jesus didn't die and, and raise or isn't the son of God. Dang, that's pretty convincing because of the way it's coming. Well, sorry bud, that's not what scripture says. Right, like That's the, the kind of... of filter and the reverence that we need to have for the word of God where everything comes through and then finally the presence of a counter argument does not mean your conviction is biblically wrong so this is something that I I came across when I was a a senior in high school I was sharing the gospel with someone at work um, back in my Hobby Lobby days and uh, this guy said this argument and I was like that is such a weak argument come on, like, that's just, that's just not good. Like, and so we were talking through it, and that's what I was going through in my mind. I was like, this is really what's, what's holding, holding you back? Because he was like, there's so many different religions out there in the world. How can I know that this is the one? Like, what are the odds, essentially? And I was like, man, if I, you know, found a quarter in a grass, like, still a quarter, regardless if there are a million dimes around, I, I, can, I can say, regardless of how many options that there are, that this is legitimate. And yes, that is the the analogy that I used, and yes, it was weak, and six years later, I'm still using a quarter in a, in a yard, but excuse that. But then as I encountered that argument again and again and again and again and again and again and again in college, of man, but there's so much around. It's, it's, very, it's a relativistic argument, right? It's an argument of relativism. How can we really know truth? There's so many arguments of what truth is. I can't really know it. And you can start to really buy into that lie, I started to, like, just that irrational, arguably irrational. Like, I understand it's irrational, but it was just in the back of my mind. But what we need to understand is that, yeah, there are a lot of different truth claims out there, and Scripture says that there will be. But we can't just go, because it's out there, I must not be able to know truth. No, Scripture says, this is truth, and by the way, the truth is, is that there are going to be like a million different attempts to tell you what the truth is. And so we need to have that, especially students, right? When you are in middle school, high school, when you get to college and you're having those arguments, that is an argument you're going to come across a lot. And it's going to, you might disregard it at first, but it's just that slowly, every time, it just kind of hits you in the head. And eventually it's, if you're not careful, you might find yourself or even your emotions believing it, where it causes this anxiety and this concern. Stand strong. It's not a good argument. And scripture tells us to expect it. And so if you start to feel those things, come talk to me. Let's, let's work through that because I've been there. I am there at times. Then we get into verses 10 and 11. So we hit the first part of 10. We're going to hit the second part of 10. So I'm going to read that. And with every wicked deception among those who are perishing, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. And then we'll finish with verse 12. So that, they will, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. Good grief. Not the easiest passage to figure out what that's saying just at face value. At least for me. Maybe there are some crazy Bible scholars in the room, which I know that there are. But looking at that, I was like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? And so I really struggled in my prep to... to as I was working through this, to find the best way to describe these verses. 
Because again, our main theme is looking at Paul's driving theme throughout this letter of assurance of salvation and comfort found, in, found therein. And I believe that that is a, a faithful direction from the text. I believe that that is one of the hearts of Paul. But that does not mean that there are not 40 different sermons that could be preached on this passage. Right? So we could, we could go down a four-hour rabbit hole, or someone a lot smarter than I, could, who could talk for that long with substance, could go down a, a four-hour rabbit hole on just exactly what this is saying. And that would be faithful to the text. But we don't have time for that. Right? And so... So instead of getting into the why of it all, so really digging down and, and chewing through this and talking in, in a lot of depth about what it means so that all will be condemned, I, wanna, I think it's, it's better to, to kind of go through more of an overview of these verses while still going directly to the text. Again, that's what we got to do every single time. What is this text saying? Not just because Jacob or David or Cameron or whoever's up here is saying this is what it is, but what is the text saying? So in looking at this, I'm going to pull out three main ideas, and then we'll trace them through. So from these verses, we learn, I'm hoping there's a slide for this. One, the people in question are perishing because they did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. Two, they buy hook, line, and sinker into the deceptions of the enemy, which is verse 10. And three, because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved... God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie even more so. So we're looking at verses 10 through through 12, which again, I'm going to read one more time. So you're, you're looking at kind of what we're pulling from here. And with every wicked deception among those who are perishing, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. So let's look at that first point. The people in question are perishing because they did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. Now, notice that, that kind of he sandwiches these verses here. So if we're looking at verse 10, the reason that they perish is because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. And then in verse 12, he finishes by kind of clarifying that part of not believing the truth also means delighting in unrighteousness. Because it's, it's two different descriptors given to the same group of people. So when we're looking at that, we see elsewhere in Scripture that this describes the general state of non-believers. So without the Lord's intervention, not believing the truth and delighting in unrighteousness describes all of us. Okay, so I'm going to slow down for a second because we're really getting into this now. Without the Lord's intervention, not believing the truth and therefore not being saved... And, and also, not just not believing, but delighting in unrighteousness describes all of us. Romans 3, 10 through 11. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Romans three twenty three, Which, by the way, middle schoolers, I did not forget that you were supposed to memorize Romans three twenty three last week, so I will be quizzing you later. Um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all have sinned. All have turned away. There's no one who does what is good. So how is it that some of us are saved and some of us are not? Well, we'll get into that in verses 13 through 15. But we need to understand that this is, this as, as kind of a foundation for where we're going to go with these verses, to understand all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Number two, these people who Paul is, is referring to by hook, line, and sinker into the deceptions of the enemy. In fact, we see elsewhere in scripture that deception or a wrong view of the truth goes hand in hand with sin and unrighteousness. Romans 1.18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all, ungod- all godlessness and unrighteousness. So again, we're all in that boat to start out. But of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it's not just getting some fact confused theologically. Right? But there is a moral and an ethical connection with proper belief. And that kind of is going to tee up for us, which so did point one, but we're going to look at it verses 13 through 15. So if it doesn't feel like I'm tying the bow on these things, hold with me. Number three, because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie even more so. So while this may seem confusing at first, and though I'm not going to go too much into this for the sake of time and topic, there are a couple things to note here. The people are not perishing because God sends them a strong delusion. Okay, so kind of, that's an important distinction. God sends them a strong delusion, quote, for this reason, namely, quote, because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. So this distinction is very important. Are we dealing with mostly good or mostly bad people here? In our natural state, are we mostly good or mostly bad? We are completely, utterly bad. Read Romans 3, right? Going back to those, those verses we looked at. Verses 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. There's no one who does what is good. There's nothing good. None seek God. All have turned away from him. Uh, their lips are venom of vipers. I mean, it, it's pretty descriptive about how evil we are. And we must understand that we are in our situation of death because we have sinned. God did not create us in this state. Right? God created us perfect in paradise. Perfect unity with him. And we turned away from him. Romans 6.23, which middle school is also supposed to have. Right? We see that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we're all dead. So that's the starting place when we look at the responsibility of God and responsibility of man in the process of salvation. We need to understand that. And then we also see that God turning people over to their sins and wickedness is not a new concept in Scripture. Romans 1, 24 through 25, and if it's not up there, try to really focus for these verses because these are important. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So basically, man sinned, right? Man sinned. Therefore, God delivered them over in the, the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. So they were degraded in their thinking because they, they did not worship the creator, but what was created, they turned away from God, and so therefore God gave them over to what they wanted. 
Romans 1.26, which is just the next verse. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And he goes on saying the effects of what's going on here. But again, God, for this reason, because they did not, because they knew God but did not glorify him as God, he gave them over to their, to their disgraceful passions. In Romans 1, 28. And because they, he says it again, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. So man sins, God delivers them over to their sin. So two possible thoughts on why God may do this. Again, you could spend hours just right here. People have written books and books and books on it. But two possible thoughts on why God may do this. Why is it, going back to our our home passage here in 2 Thessalonians 2, why is it that for this reason God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie? One, this is kind of cool, I think. So, if God is good and is good for us, and not just good for us, but the absolute best for us, God is good and the best for us. And if sin is the antithesis to God, so what does that mean? Antithesis. The opposite of God, right? Then sin is bad for us, but not just bad for us. It's the absolute worst for us because it's anti-God. So God is the best. Sin is the absolute worst. So what is one of the greatest punishments God could possibly give us? to turn us over to our sinful desires. Because though it feels good, it is the, one of the worst punishments we could have because this is the opposite of God. And so God giving us what we want crazily is actually one of the most righteous judgments he could give us. And then, One other possible thought on why God may do this, why God may turn them over. If this event that we're talking about is an actual event that's coming, the coming of the lawless one, and it's a culmination of sin, it's the epitome of sin, right? It's it's absolute rebellion to the Lord. Then the the having it as the epitome of sin also leads to the epitome of justice on display. So these people are not saved, not because God sends them a strong delusion, but because they did not accept the love of the truth. And so when God deludes them even further, that condemnation is not so that they will be judged as wrong, but so that the outpouring of judgment, the evidence of judgment, will be even that more severe. Right? Justice is on its greatest display when it's contrasted with the worst evil. So just two thoughts there. And again, I don't want to get too much on that last point, but just some thoughts of of what does this mean that God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. But ultimately the question is, what are the implications for us as it pertains to dealing with doubt, uncertainty, and proper belief? We should absolutely expect for people to very strongly disagree with us and be unmoved in our discourse with them. And their delusion or the extent of their delusion may even be from God himself. Does that mean we don't engage with them? Absolutely not, because we don't know who's going to come to know Jesus and not. But we should expect deception attempts, and we should expect people to be unmoved at times. So let's move on to verses 13 through 14. 
And we're actually going to see a bit of a mirror here. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. This is really stinking cool. Okay, so when we're looking at comfort, understanding the context that's been presented, like we need to really dial in here. Because this is where Paul is saying, hey, this is, these are the people who are not going to know Jesus, but here's the comfort for you, okay? And so we need to ask, why is Paul using the words that he's using for his end, which is to comfort the people? So he starts in, in, in speaking of their assurance of salvation by telling them that they're loved by the Lord. Why? Because his love is constant despite their thoughts on the status of the Lord's love for them. Do you see that? Does that take some of the sting out of your wrestling with doubts? Because you can believe the Lord doesn't love me, the Lord doesn't love me, the Lord doesn't love me. But let me tell you, if God has chosen you for salvation, right, which means that's set, doesn't matter how much you doubt that, it does not affect his love for you. So it takes some of the pressure off of you to have all of the right feelings, all of the right thoughts. And just as a note, if Romans 8.28 and Hebrews 13.5-6, which tell you that the Lord is for you and that everything that happens to you, he allows for your good, if that and the love of the Lord is true, among so many other verses, even your doubts and questions, or even that your doubts and questions are allowed, no matter how loud they may be, they're allowed as a byproduct of the, love's Lord, of the Lord's love for you and a focus on his glory. So the very doubts and questions, this trial, actually is evidence, if you could step back and see everything pulled behind the curtains of the Lord's love for you. Next we see that he declares, from the beginning, they've been chosen for salvation. I'm giving this section notes because I don't think we're going to go down that. So from the beginning, God has chosen them from salvation. So why does that matter? Again, going back into what we were talking about by your thoughts and your doubts not affecting the state of your salvation. If this is true, then, then that's set in stone. That's done. That decision has been made. Again, another thing that takes some of that pressure and worry off your shoulders. This is, your salvation is something that was set by God before you were even a thought, but forget that, man, before he laid the foundation of the earth. We also see that um, in Ephesians 1.4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love for him. 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Check that. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. You feel the relief. It's not on you. Man, it's not on you. And this, this is kind of a culmination of this. It's not only that he chose them from the beginning, but do you notice how the Lord brought about their salvation? This was a little revelatory for me. 
through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. That can turn your, your understanding of the Lord's love for you absolutely on its head. I know it's not up there. So God has chosen, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Note that it does not say because. He did not choose you because of sanctification. And he did not choose you because of belief in the truth. So what on earth does this mean? One, it means that proper belief is necessary for salvation. Because it's part of that drive train, if you will. Right? So God chose us through belief, through proper belief, but not because of proper belief. So what does that mean about proper belief? One, it's necessary for salvation. But it also means that it's a natural outpouring of the Lord's sovereign choosing. Which is crazy. It's not, and so as we're looking at this, there are two kind of camps. There's that person who's kind of more where I stand, which is the the worry of, I've got to have all my T's crossed, I's dotted. Make sure I got that in the right order, right? To, to, and I, I can't believe wrong. What if I get this wrong? What if I'm, well, is, what about, man, but that over there in, in 2 Timothy is kind of throwing me for a loop, right? And it creates this anxiety of, am I, am I saved? Am I going to believe something wrong? Am I going to throw myself out of salvation? Right, those are the anxieties. None of that is biblical, right? But then there's the other camp of, well, belief doesn't really matter, Right? It doesn't really matter what I believe. You can believe anything. Everybody gets to heaven. Or, well, as, as long as belief is an outpouring of salvation, you can see those two kinds of extremes. But I want us to really understand there is a happy medium here. So, he chose you for salvation, and he used belief in the truth to do that. Note here, we're going to look at uh, Acts thirteen forty-eight. This is definitely not on the slides. So this is, is the preaching uh, to the Gentiles. Quote, when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. All who had been appointed to eternal life believed. So they were appointed to eternal life and belief came out from that. Um, yeah, that's, that's good. We'll stop there. So the question that I would have for you, if God has chosen someone for salvation and proper belief is necessary for salvation, do you think said person could truly believe improperly? I would argue no. Does that mean that proper belief is not important? Absolutely not. The things that you believe about God completely Dictate the way that you live. And we do not want to be in error. Over and over, the scriptures are clear. Go, search the scriptures. Study them. Find out who the Lord is. So to the person who is like me, who is so scared of getting things wrong, understand that the Lord has sealed you. The Lord has chosen for you, chosen you. He has sealed you. So take some of that pressure off. Yes, study the word of the Lord. But it is the Lord who opens our eyes to understanding, not us who opens our eyes to understanding. 
which also means you don't have to have a PhD to figure out the gospel and the truth of salvation. It's not about your mental capacity. If the Lord has chosen you for salvation, he will give you eyes to see and ears to hear that which is necessary to bring about your salvation. How faithful is he? Because man, there are people a lot smarter than I am. A lot smarter than I am. But it's not about that. We see in 1 Corinthians 1, man, the, the, the world's wisdom is foolishness and God is pleased to bring about the salvation of those who he has chosen through the foolishness of the cross. Because logically, in human logic, it seems foolish. But to those who are, and he says, to those who are perishing, which is the same language in 1 Thessalonians, but to those who are being saved, the power of cross, uh, the, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So thank the Lord that he will open your eyes. and Don't freak out as much. But to the person whose tendency is to say, oh, well, then I don't need to care what I believe. Absolutely not. That's the same thing to say, well, since works don't save me, I don't need to do good works. No. Good works don't save you, but they are evidence, not cause, but evidence that you have been saved. Right? So we don't just ignore good works. James is like, don't do that. In the same way with proper belief, no, it doesn't save you, but it is evidence that you have been saved. Right? So don't disregard it. And understand, as Sinclair Ferguson says, the conviction that Christian, he's a, a theologian, awesome, awesome guy, uh, that the conviction that Christian doctrine matters for Christian living is one of the most important growth points on the Christian life. And also note that Paul answered the people's worries with proper theology. Right? He's like, yeah, but proper belief isn't that, like, isn't, isn't the end all be all in the sense that you have to get it all figured out but I'm going to give you proper belief because it's important. And I'm not going to belabor that point anymore because we, are, we do not have the time for that. So verses 14, we're wrapping up here. He called you to this through our gospel, so to salvation through our gospel, so that you might obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings about salvation, this choosing, using this, this drivetrain, if you will, of sanctification, and proper belief, but he calls you to this through the gospel that is preached. The Lord has, and again, I'm not going to stay here for long, but the Lord has appointed in his good understanding and wisdom that the preaching of the gospel ignites this process in us. Right, which answers the question, well, if the Lord's going to choose, then why do I need to go share the gospel? Because the Lord, in his sovereignty, has used that as a means to bring about the salvation process. We want to be a part of that. We should be preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. And then finally, verses 15 through 17, or 15 through 16. We'll stick 15, and we'll make a, a note of 16, 17. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote, So then, which is to say, because you have been chosen and have been called, right? Which means, track with, this, with me for a second here. Which means that your understanding of the Lord's sovereign choosing of you and your permanence in him is important to the way that you live your life. Specifically, it informs 
our need and ability to stand firm. They are to remember what they have been taught. The pure gospel God used to call them. Not to add anything to it, not to freak out, but to remember. To not be, verse 2 of chapter 2, easily upset or troubled. Hey, hey, oh, I know you're freaking out. Why are you freaking out? The Lord's chosen you. Man, he's called you. He's going to give you proper belief. So yeah, vet it with scripture. Do that. Proper beliefs, important. Absolutely important. Don't be freaking out that you're about to lose your salvation. Okay? And again, that's what, walking that balance is so careful. So I just want to be very explicit here. At no point, in no way, am I saying proper belief is not important. Oh my goodness. The opposite. It elevates proper belief because the Lord has chosen sovereignly to use it to bring about salvation. My point is that the Lord has sealed you and will hold you. And so when you're trying to work through questions and doubts, don't freak out like those doubts, like I do. Don't freak out like those doubts are about to kill you. So this also asks the question, how does Paul have confidence that they are chosen and have been called? Because that's what he's saying. He's saying, because you're chosen to be called, and have been called. So how does he have that confidence? Because he sees the fruit, their fruit in the midst of affliction. First Thessalonians three, five through six. I'm not going to read these, but Second Thessalonians one, three through five. Right, he says that, that, that they are standing strong in the midst of affliction. But note that he does not base his confidence of their salvation upon their lack of certainty or upon their presence of certainty. So just because you're having doubts does not inherently mean that you're not within the elect. Now, if those doubts are, I don't really see any fruit or things like that, like, let's talk about it. But this is also why we need people around us who know Jesus and who know us and who can be real with us. Because, man, when I'm saying, I don't know if I'm one of the elect or, in, you know, in, in Christ, I don't know if I've been saved. Have someone say, Jacob, buddy, come on. I've known you for eight years now. Hey, hey. Bro, I see the fruit. These are evidences that God has given us that we are in him. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to freak out. So yeah, let's take some time. Let's work through these doubts. Let's work through these questions. But it's not going to kill you, okay? You don't have to freak out. Ultimately, finally, when we understand the steady state we have in Christ, chosen by God, saved through his work, we can have a true, unwavering steadiness in the midst of deception attempts and doubts. And then notice what he says in verses 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Remember, they're struggling with doubts. And he says, hey, he's loved us. He's given eternal encouragement. May he encourage your heart and strengthen you. And the God of the universe cares. Cares what you're struggling with. Cares what you're working through. And to those who are in Christ Jesus, these are the promises he has given us. The Lord loves you. 
Now, if you've been listening to this and you, are, you have not believed in Jesus Christ, you are not saved. Come, believe, follow him, please. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word and the comfort that you give us, for the love that you have shown us. God, I pray that you will open all of our minds to see what is true, that is, is, is not simply a rhetorical discourse, but that you will speak to our spirits through your Holy Spirit on a level that we can't touch. For those who don't know you, I pray that you will grant them proper belief. Open their eyes, please, Lord. Give them a tug to which they cannot resist. And ultimately, Lord, please, in everything, God, please be glorified. Please comfort saints who are struggling with doubt. And those who are struggling with complacency, Father, please motivate them to see that belief is important. And Lord, thank you that you have secured us in your hand and will not let us go. Despite how much we may kick or scream or how much we may doubt that you hold us in your hand. Because it is set. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.